This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Welcome to another episode of Company Cars. We're continuing our series of exploring the origin stories of the Japanese luxury car brands. And in this episode, we're exploring the origin story of Infinity, which is Nissan's luxury brand. So as a frame of reference, this is the third of four episodes in a multi-episode series about Japanese luxury brands, and we've already covered Acura and Lexus on previous episodes. And after this episode about Infinity, we have one episode about Mazda's attempt at a luxury brand called Amadi. And so if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes about Acura and Lexus, I highly recommend doing so, because you'll get a lot more out of each episode by listening to the entire series and being able to compare the business decisions that differed at Honda, Toyota, Nissan, and Mazda, and how those different business decisions have led each brand to where they are today. So on this episode, we'll talk about Nissan's approach to launching Infinity. How did Infinity kick things off? So recall in the Acura and Lexus episodes, we discussed the Japanese export quotas of the 1980s and the trade agreements that Japan and the United States had to limit the number of cars that the Japanese car makers would export from Japan. So set against this backdrop, Nissan also came to a similar conclusion as Honda and Toyota that they should try to work on a premium brand to maximize its profits from its fixed Japanese export slots. And during the 1980s, Nissan was on a roll, and that might be a bit difficult to believe for those of us that are more in tune with the current automotive market where Nissan has kind of struggled, but Nissan during the 1980s was in its heyday, and the company produced a wide range of highly popular products like the 300ZX sports car, the 240SX sports car, and the Maxima sedan, which was commonly referred to as the four-door sports car. So during the 1980s, Nissan had this reputation for sporty handling and performance, but like Toyota and Honda, it didn't really have a reputation for building high-end luxury cars in the United States. So the company did have this deep wealth of expertise to develop high-performance cars, but they didn't really have a lot of expertise building luxury cars. So in the 1980s, Nissan set out to apply its expertise from its highly acclaimed performance cars in the U.S. to develop a luxury car for the U.S. market. So unlike Honda and more like Toyota, Nissan had a full lineup of luxury cars it sold in Japan, but only in Japan. So Nissan didn't have a lot of experience selling luxury cars in the U.S., but the company did have more experience than Honda, who had never really sold anything much larger than an Accord before they started work on the Acura Legend. So, whereas Toyota invested in a complete clean sheet approach to build a luxury car unique for the North American market, Nissan decided that it wouldn't need to invest in a completely clean sheet approach. And they didn't have the resources that Toyota had to devote to a completely brand new luxury car for the US. So Nissan took a look around its product portfolio in Japan, and they decided they could pursue a marketing strategy of leaning into their Japanese heritage and focus on the performance element, whereas Toyota was focusing more on luxury. So uh, the company chose to create Americanized versions of its top-tier Japanese products to launch Infinity. Infinity is best known for its pretty quirky ads that they used ahead of their launch. So unlike Toyota, Nissan built these really highly abstract ads that emphasized craftsmanship attention to detail and nuance, and these original ads for Infinity were 
quite notable for the fact they didn't show any footage of cars at all. So one of them had a conversation between two people at a restaurant talking about craftsmen and would you buy a home from a craftsman builder. And then at the end, they just flashed the Infinity logo and at the bottom wrote that Infinity was crafted by Nissan. So these ads were pretty abstract. And I think there's there's still a lot of debate over how effective these ads were. So a lot of people felt the ads were effective at peaking curiosity into what Infinity was. And other people felt that Nissan was crazy for not even mentioning that Infinity, by the way, was going to sell cars. And these ads were in contrast to Lexus's much more traditional ads that showed the LS400, that showed elements of the car uh, and pieces about the car. So Nissan looked at its product portfolio and they chose to adapt three cars from their Japanese product portfolio for the US market. But the leading car for the launch of Infiniti was going to be based on the Nissan President, which was a large luxury sedan that Nissan made for the Japanese market. Nissan engineers took a Nissan President, shortened the car a bit, and changed the front and rear styling and then called it the Infiniti Q45. And the intention of this car was it would compete with the Acura Legend, Mercedes-Benz 300e, BMW 5 Series, and Jaguar XJ6. So note here, this is another piece of its strategy where Nissan differed from Toyota. So Nissan followed the same calculus as Honda in pursuing kind of the volume, midsize executive car piece of the market. But even with a shortened version of the Nissan President, the Q45 was quite a bit larger than the Legend, but was smaller than the Lexus LS400, which Toyota had designed to compete against much bigger BMWs and Mercedes-Benzes. So that put the Q45 in kind of a strange spot, where it was bigger than the Legend, smaller than the LS400, and bigger than comparable cars from Mercedes and BMW. However, Nissan also curiously decided to price the Infiniti Q45 slightly higher than the Lexus LS400 at launch. So you were buying this car that was smaller than an LS400, but more expensive. But Infiniti did like to point out that they offered much more standard equipment than Lexus offered in the LS400. The decision to adapt a Japanese car meant for the Japanese market, for the U.S. market, is a decision that cuts two ways for Nissan. On one hand, Nissan didn't have to spend the kind of money that Toyota spent on a completely ground-up, unique car, because Toyota spent close to a billion dollars on the original LS400. But on the other hand, the Infiniti Q45 was not quite as tailored to American luxury car buyers' tastes as the LS400 was. So in the early reviews for the Q45 that I looked at in preparing for this podcast, a lot of the reviewers noted that the Infiniti Q45 was a very nice car, handled very well, was incredibly well-built or well-crafted, as Nissan might want you to believe, but it had a couple of curious oddities about it. Like, it, was, it wasn't it was as roomy inside as you would expect a car to be at this price point, even though it was larger than the Acura Legend. Um, the car had no wood trim inside at all, so the interior, even though it was incredibly well-built, was fairly spartan, and to some people, didn't feel like incredibly different from a high-end Nissan Maxima at the time. And so it was clear that some parts from the original Infiniti Q45 were also shared with the original Nissan Maxima around that time, or the contemporary Nissan Maxima. And this is a big issue because it's going to be an issue that dogs Infiniti for years to come, and even today, that 
Infinities are just high-end Nissans, and this wasn't the case in this in this original car. The Q45 was completely different from the Maxima, but because they shared some of the same switch gear and components, some of it looked familiar to shoppers, and that doesn't necessarily create warm and fuzzy feelings if you're going to spend $40,000 on a car and you see switch gear and parts that come from a $20,000 car from the same company. So the Infiniti Q45, even though it had reasonably solid reviews and got really good reviews for, it, for its handling, for its acceleration, it wasn't quite the knockout game changer car that the, that the Lexus LS400 was. Like it didn't have a huge price advantage over the Germans. Um, it had some price advantage over the Germans, but it wasn't. It was more expensive than an Acura Legend, so it wasn't the price leader. Uh, it was even more expensive than the Lexus LS400. And so it was a bit of a niche car when it came out. And a lot of the early reporting suggested that the Infiniti Q45 did not sell as well as the Lexus LS400 did initially. And so this was kind of a consequence of, of Nissan taking a quick fix approach to launching a luxury brand for the U.S. market, where in the last episode, you'll recall that Toyota spent years and years and years of market research and years and years of engineering time to build a car unique for the United States and North America, Nissan appears to have taken a much quicker path to come to market with the Infiniti Q45. So this theme of Nissan investing less than its peers into Infiniti is a recurring theme, unfortunately, throughout the 1990s. So while Lexus continued to build on its initial success and Toyota consistently poured money and new products into Lexus throughout the 1990s, Nissan fell into a period of malaise during the 1990s. So Nissan as a company in general was having a tough time during the 1990s. And this is what led to its eventual rescue by Carlos Ghosn and Renault in 1999. But how this affected Infiniti was Infiniti didn't have a clear brand statement or slogan to tie their cars together like Acura and Lexus had. And also Infiniti didn't really have a lot of new products that the brand was getting throughout the 90s. So Nissan did give the Infiniti brand a new Q45 in 1997, but because of budget constraints, Nissan had to develop the Q45 based on the older and less expensive Nissan Cedric platform. So this meant the second generation Q45 was actually based on an older and less expensive car than the first generation Q45, even though the car had gotten more expensive. And so when the second generation Q45 came out in 1997, it got pretty lackluster reviews. And it was even further behind the Lexus LS400 in terms of sales and consumer preference, because Lexus had come out with a second generation LS400 that built upon the original and further refined the car. And at the same time, Nissan was increasing prices at Infiniti. So the second generation Q45 was not any less expensive than an LS400 around the same time. And throughout the 1990s, Nissan did give Infiniti some new products, but a lot of these products were borrowed elsewhere from the Nissan family, and actually all of them were. So this meant that the products didn't have a theme that tied the car together, like Lexus, Mercedes, or BMW. And Two of Infiniti's best sellers during the 1990s, which were the Infiniti i30 sedan and the Infiniti QX4 SUV, they were 
nearly rebadged versions of Nissan cars that Nissan sold in the U.S. So you could go to an Infiniti dealer and get an Infiniti i30, but it would be 95, 97% the same car as the Nissan Maxima. And the Infiniti QX4 was 90 to 95% the same car as the Nissan Pathfinder. And even though these two cars sold well and were fairly profitable for Infiniti, they didn't do very much for the brand because reviewers pointed out that you could buy a top-of-the-line Nissan Maxima or Pathfinder and get a very similar experience to what you got in the Infiniti version of the same car, but you could save a lot of money by buying the Nissan version. So these two cars, even though they sold really well, they reinforced Infiniti's reputation as just fancier Nissans with maybe slightly better leather, a little bit of wood trim, and a nicer dealership waiting room when you went in for service. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated a division of integrated derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. All this changed when Carlos Ghosn arrived at Nissan in 1999. So Carlos Ghosn arrived at Nissan in 1999 to save the brand and save the company from going under. So part of that turnaround effort Carlos Ghosn decided that he was going to invest substantial amounts of money to make Infiniti a true global luxury brand on par with Lexus, BMW, Mercedes, and Audi. So he didn't do this out of nostalgia or out of interest in pursuing a luxury brand. He did this because oftentimes luxury brands are far more profitable than their mainstream counterparts, and he had core market share and profitability goals that would be a little bit more challenging to hit if Infinity couldn't pull its weight within the company. So Carlos Ghosn invested substantial amounts of money into Infinity, and they decided to recast the brand and focus very tightly on performance and technology. So where Lexus had developed this reputation for reliability, quality, craftsmanship, they weren't quite as known for building fun-to-drive cars. So Infinity saw this niche and said, we are going to build cars that are extremely fun to drive and that are extremely high tech and have a lot of features for the money. So Carlos Ghosn approved the development of a dedicated architecture for Infinity that allowed the brand to develop cars that would be com- almost completely independent of Nissan products. So during the early 2000s, Infinity launched a series of cars that actually really changed the luxury car market in various corners. So In 2003, Infiniti launched the G35 sports sedan, which was considered the first Japanese luxury car that could outperform the class benchmark BMW 3 Series. And the G35 was less expensive than a 3 Series, it was roomier than a 3 Series, and it offered more technology features than a BMW 3 Series. So this car really changed how the compact luxury sports sedan market uh, was moving, and it upended the segment by saying you can have reliability, you can have quality, you can have high performance, and you can have value all tied up in one car, which previously had been a bit difficult for any other automaker to do. So Infiniti also followed up that G35 launch with 
a new product called the FX. And the FX was this really outlandish and strange, bulbous-looking performance SUV. And it was the first SUV that had no pretense, really, of going off-road. And this initial FX35 and 45 were really fast. They handled really well. They, they were described as sports cars on stilts. And they had totally out-of-this-world alien styling. And people loved this car. It was a big risk for Infinity, but people really enjoyed these cars and people started buying them in large numbers. And the Infinity FX set the stage for broader consumer acceptance of high-performance coupe-like SUVs with poor visibility, but really strong straight-line performance and handling, like the Porsche Macan and BMW X6, both of which are now really successful today. Infinity also pioneered a lot of modern driver assistance technologies as that was an investment initiative of Carlos Ghosn. So Infiniti launched a mid-sized luxury sedan to compete against the BMW 5 Series, Mercedes E-Class, and Lexus GS slightly after the G35 came out, and this was called the Infiniti M. And what was notable about the Infiniti M was that Infiniti put a lot of technology that was pretty out there for the mid-2000s. So you could buy your Infiniti M with a backup camera, adaptive cruise control, and with lane departure warning. So a lot of the modern safety features that we see in most cars today, Infiniti was already starting to sell cars with this technology at that point in time. And yes, Mercedes, BMW, and Lexus offered some of these features, but nobody had offered it in the mid-sized luxury segment yet. And Infiniti wrapped all these features into a pretty attractive-looking mid-sized luxury sports sedan that handled really well and had a lot of features for the money. So Infiniti had this all new lineup in the 2000s and it was suddenly a really popular, cool brand. And so it seemed like it was moving up in the world during the 2000s. All of its new products under Carlos Ghosn were highly regarded and they sold really well. They had a clear branding and marketing strategy focused on sports car-like performance and they had a clear tagline that tied all of their products together. So their tagline at the time I believe, was accelerating the future. So it was like focused on performance and technology. And it seemed like things were going well for Infinity, and Nissan was finally investing the money that Infinity deserved. However, one of Toyota's other secrets to success with Lexus has been its consistency over time. So Carlos Ghosn, when he first started at Nissan, he invested a lot of money into Infinity, into a dedicated platform for Infinity. But after kind of this first round of new products that went really well, Carlos Ghosn didn't really pay as much attention to Infinity, and they didn't consistently continue to invest more and more money to build on their success coming out of the 2000s. So during the 2010s, Nissan instead began focusing on increasing its sales volumes under Carlos Ghosn's Power 88 strategic plan. And the company began cutting back its investment in Infinity. And we saw this in products that weren't updated as frequently. We saw this in products that were updated, but the new product wasn't as big of an incremental improvement over the previous ones, and they were mainly just matching their competitors instead of trying to beat them. So they also pursued heavy market share growth for both Nissan and Infiniti, which would have been required to meet Carlos Ghosn's Power 88 strategic plan. So Nissan started heavily discounting Infinity products, and so they started offering lots of highly discounted leases. 
to get consumers into cars, and they started selling Infinities into rental fleets. So all of this served to kind of cheapen the Infinity brand and kind of gave back some of the gains that Infinity had made during the 2000s. So it also didn't help that during the 2010s, there was a lot of turmoil at the top of Infinity. So there were several strategy changes throughout the 2010s, and the company changed its brand CEO several times and moved headquarters from Japan to Hong Kong and then back to Japan. And so all of these things were distractions for the brand. And what's unfortunate is that their lineup today is generally considered as nothing particularly special or interesting relative to its luxury peers. And it's definitely not the cool technological and performance leader that the brand was during the 2000s. So in general, Infinity's journey over the past three decades has been one of Nissan trying to accomplish what Toyota has accomplished, but with a smaller budget and with less consistency. So recall that Toyota invested a large sum of money and effort into a clean sheet car, and Nissan took an existing cart sold in Japan and sold it in the U.S. under a different name. And so I think Infinity has a lot of potential and maybe was a good initial idea, kind of this idea of craftsman assembled cars that emphasize performance. But Nissan didn't stick with any one strategy for Infinity long enough. So they went from these like craftsman assembled cars that are high performance to fancier Nissans to cars that were high performance and offered a lot of technology, and then they kind of let that die on the vine. And now they're pursuing a strategy of fancier Nissans once again. So they haven't really stuck with a strategy long enough to really see if it would work for the brand. And I think that there's potential in the Infinity brand that Nissan is leaving on the table. So uh, Carlos Ghosn and his executive team didn't really follow up their large initial investment into Infinity in the early 2000s. And they couldn't keep the momentum going. And the brand just kind of withered on the vine. And it it felt very neglected for many years. And I think after the departure of Carlos Ghosn, Nissan has said that they're once again going to pursue a Nissan Plus strategy with Infinity, where they are going to return to the previous strategy of using existing Nissan products and making them nicer and more stylish inside. So we'll see if this works. But I'm very skeptical of this idea because... In the Acura episode, we mentioned that this is something that Honda has tried for a long time, and recently Honda has decided the opposite for Acura, that they needed uh, more distinct separation between Honda and Acura, and that Acura was going to get investment in more unique components and designs to have a chance to thrive. So I'm a bit skeptical of Nissan's strategy over the next few years, but we'll see if it works. I mean, it's a time of big disruption in the car business, and so... Any one strategy could have a lot of risks because there's a lot of uncertainty over electric cars, over whether or not performance cars will still be a trend in a few years. So it's a very unique time for Infinity, and I think the brand is a little bit lost, but we'll see over the next few years if the latest strategy can get the brand back on track. And all that to say is that over the years, Infinity cars have been kind of hit or miss. So it's been... Some years have had really good cars, and some years have had less than exciting cars, and certain years are more reliable than others, and it's just not very consistent, and I think that's also hurt Infinity's resale values on the used car market. So Infinities tend to trade at a bit of a discount versus Lexus and Acura products that are comparable. And I think sometimes this actually creates interesting opportunities for great used car buys, especially in 
maybe to some of the pre-Carlos Ghosn year cars where Infinities were actually quite reliable, as were Nissans, and where a lot of the parts are similar to their Nissan counterparts. Um, and it's a car that people oftentimes will forget about even now. And I think it's also an interesting opportunity, potentially, on the new side, where if you can get into a, uh, a subsidized lease once those come back after the chip shortage, or if you can find a nice certified pre-owned unit, um, you can get a lot of car for the money, but it requires a bit of picking through the noise because there's certainly a lot of cars that Infinity has made over the years that have been a bit lackluster, and for similar money, you could probably buy a better car elsewhere. But Infinity has also made some cars that have been quite good over the years. And so I think the G35 Sport sedan that we've mentioned previously uh, is now the Q50. And while the Q50 is a bit outdated in its design, um, it's a fairly fun car to drive, especially if you find one with the big 3-liter twin-turbo V6 engine in the more recent years. Um, like, it's very clear that these are pretty dated cars, but it's a lot of car for the money, whether you're renting at Hertz or you're buying a used one that's a couple years old. And so I think, overall, uh, Nissan's inconsistency with Infiniti has really hurt the brand. And I think that's been a big secret to Toyota's success with Lexus, as they have just been consistently investing, consistently making Lexus a priority. And even in the cars that Lexus sells that are fancier versions of a Toyota, which Lexus sells several of these cars, some of which are their best sellers, like the RX and the ES, which are much fancier versions of Toyota counterpart cars. But Lexus invests a lot of money and effort into differentiating the two cars. And so when you get into the Lexus version of, of a car that has a Toyota Pier, for the most part, it's very difficult to tell that they're very similar cars unless you drive them back to back or you're a car enthusiast and you're looking specifically at certain pieces. Whereas I think at some point during the 90s, Infiniti and Nissan products, the only things that they changed were the front grille, the badge on the steering wheel, and then the rear end look. And everything else was the same. And I think that's kind of maybe a less compelling value proposition than if you have a car that looks completely different on the outside, looks completely different on the inside, has some unique features, and doesn't feel like it's the same car from the mainstream brand peer. Um, so I think even with a Nissan Plus strategy, even though I'm very skeptical, there's the potential for Nissan to execute it well. And I think the first test of this will be when Infiniti reveals and starts selling its new QX60 midsize SUV. So this is going to be an Infiniti version of the new Nissan Pathfinder, once again. And the Infiniti version is going to have different styling, inside and out. Um, I think in the early pictures I've seen so far, it's there's still some parts that are pretty clearly shared between the two cars, but I'll reserve final judgment until I can kind of see both cars side by side and see if all the changes in the Infiniti version are enough to make the car feel different from a very high-end Nissan Pathfinder. But it's, a, it's an interesting several years for Infiniti to watch. Also, the luxury car space has gotten much more competitive with Genesis entering the space and Lincoln and Cadillac receiving investments from their parent companies in recent years. So it's going to be an interesting space. A, a lot of automakers need to be in the luxury car segment because that's where a lot of the profits are. And the automakers need the profits to invest in electric vehicles and autonomous driving. So... Um, 
In the next episode, we'll cover Mazda, and Mazda is a very interesting case because they chose to start a luxury brand called Amadi, but they spent so much time researching it that uh, by the time they were ready to launch, the short answer is Mazda ran out of money and they canceled it just before launch. And so we'll talk about Amadi uh, on the next episode, which is probably going to be my favorite episode of the four in the series. And I look forward to seeing you there. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. Thank you for listening to our show, and make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.